Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. Jesus' name and uh, remind us how we're called in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord, we give you the thanks, the praise, the glory, and honor. Is this yours also? For who you are and what you've done for us. And dear Lord, um, I pray that you would uh, use this message today to uh, speak to our hearts and uh, give us a a fresh revelation of who you are uh, and how you work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're continuing, we're continuing our series on uh, the character study of Moses. Now, we're not doing his whole life, because that's 120 years, and that could be, <laughs> we could do 120 years on that. Um, but we're, we're hitting some, like, major points where God uh, interacts with Moses as he is coming into this formation of being a leader of Israel uh, in a time of uh, great hardship, and in uh, the time of uh, looking forward to some great hope. <clears throat> so that's, uh, that's what we're doing. Uh, to get started, um, as believers, there are many times when we have what we've often called God encounters. Sometimes you might hear it referred to as like a Kairos moment, uh, things like that. And what they are, are they're points where God interrupts our normal routines with something peculiar. So we have a normal routine, we're just doing life, and then something peculiar happens to get our attention. And it's designed that way. It's designed to get our attention so that we can see what's going on. It's, something's breaking the ordinary, what's happening? You know. Uh, and then that, whenever we, we go to investigate that, whenever we look into that peculiar, a lot of times we'll, we will see God revealing something to us. So, some examples of God encounters in history. Uh, first one I have, I've got two. First one is uh, St. Augustine. Maybe you guys know St. Augustine, maybe you don't. He was one of the, the major, uh, major figures in the early church. Um, I won't get into a lot of the, the theological stuff, but he was a major theologian that set the stage for uh, some doctrines that have lasted for a long, long time, over a thousand years. <clears throat> a little backstory on St. Augustine. Uh, he grew up in Carthage, which is northern Africa, and he, he grew up in a, a regular household. His mom was a believer, his dad not necessarily so. But when he grew up, he, he idolized Cicero, one of the greatest orators in the Roman Empire. Um, he idolized his ability to, to give compelling speeches, and to master the language of Latin. And so he took off and studied and became a career like orator. Um, one of the other terms back then is a rhetorician. Yeah, really good in rhetoric, really great with words, uh, really intelligent, uh, was on the forefront of the intellectual society, uh, landed really cushy jobs with, uh, with the upper class, and... Um, actually got involved with this movement at the time called Manichaeism. We won't get into it too much, but he loved the intellectual challenges that Manichaeism brought. <clears throat> and so he had a, re a really well-established career. 
Uh, things were going great. He got a really cushy position in Milan. Um, it's one of those famous ancient cities in Italy. Um, and then he, he hits a wall, right? Because in the Manichaean movement, it was all about the intellectual pursuit. And so it didn't really matter what you did with your body. And so he spent a, a large amount of time just giving over to, to drunkenness and licentiousness, going to all kinds of uh, sexual encounters. And he just spends his whole life in that. And he hits this wall when he's in Milan, excuse me, where it's empty. Like the intellectual pursuit does not fulfill. All this licentiousness that he does is not fulfilling. And so he hits this wall, he's in the middle of his studies, and he, he just he can't even concentrate. So he goes outside in, in uh, the back of this garden where he's at and sits under a fig tree and just cries out to the Lord. He's like, how long, O Lord? And in that point of despair, in that hitting of a wall, he hears a little child playing a game. And part of that game, we don't know what this game is, but he hears this little child going in Latin saying, Tolo legi, tolo legi, which in Latin means pick it up and read. Pick it up and read. And that's one of those God encounters. You know, it, it, sometimes it's one of those mundane things where somebody just says something peculiar in the grocery store and it triggers something in your mind and it instantly becomes a God moment. And so that's what happens here. So he goes back uh, into his, his study, pulls open the Bible, and lands on Romans 13, 13 through 14 that says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. From that God encounter on, Augustine of Hippo, because he's not a saint yet, right? Augustine of Hippo is devoted to Jesus Christ. He has this God encounter that just changes everything. Sorry, Twilight, we're on slide number two, if, you, if I... Um, <clears throat> so the other example we, I have is uh, John and Charles Wesley. Um, maybe you guys know him from uh, the, the Great Awakening, you know, in the 1700s. We, we tend to say that uh, a lot of the way we operate in ministry here is kind of of a Wesleyan bent. Um, we won't get into the details of that. Um, but John and Charles Wesley were, were tantamount. I mean, they, they, they're the ones that kind of formed the Methodist movement back in the day. Uh, and they call it the Methodist because they, uh, compared to the Anglican and the Episcopal way of doing church back then, they had peculiar methods of doing church. Now when we look at the Methodist church, it's like, oh, it's another type of liturgical church. But back then, it was groundbreaking, right? <clears throat> but John and Charles, well, John Wesley particularly, uh, was already a clergy in the Anglican church in England. And he, would, he had, like, uh, assignments in England, and then he would give, like, be given assignments over here in the United States. So they would send him over to the colonies uh, to kind of fill in for pulpit supply, is what we would call it. <clears throat> and... Even though he was a clergy, he was a professional clergyman, that's kind of a thing that happened. If you're kind of a well-to-do family and you're not the firstborn that gets the inheritance, an option is to go into the clergy. It didn't really matter what you believe. Um, and so he was a clergyman, and he wasn't really a believer. So he and Charles are on one, one of these ships coming over to uh, uh, the Americas, and this, the ship just hits rough waters. Like, it's just treacherous. 
like being tossed to and fro, and they are at their wits' end. Like they are scared, they are going to die at sea, and that's the end. Like they're losing their stuff. And they look over, and in, in the similar compartment, there are a group of uh, Moravians, um, not going to get into a lot of the church history, but, but they were known for being missionaries coming out of Central Europe. And they have this, this culture of having this deep-rooted relationship with God, of being really connected with God. Um, and so they're on this boat, and they're, they're just praying, and they're calm, and they're singing to the Lord. And Charles and John Wesley are like, how can you be doing this? This boat could go down at any minute, you know? And they're like, what if it does, right? You know, what if it does? What's that mean? We get to see Jesus. We ain't worried about nothing, right? And they probably said it with a really nice, thick Eastern European accent, which I can't mimic. And so that was an encounter that John and Charles Wesley had. Because of that encounter, they developed a solid relationship with Jesus and transformed the Americas with the gospel. John is a minister. Charles is a songwriter. A lot of the songs you would see in the hymn books were penned by Charles Wesley. I know we don't use hymn books here. We've got a whole stack of them from uh, we inherited from the other church. We, we don't really use them because we're, you know, we use modern songs. But if you look at it, you'll see a lot of Charles Wesley stuff in there. And this God encounter, right? And that God encounter, something changes and it solidifies a trajectory that you're going on. And so those are a couple of the backstories. Like this, you know, God encounters, right? This happens in the church with people who have an encounter with God. Things change. So now we're going to go back, way back to Moses. And we're going to look at one of Moses' first God encounters. Like one that he's aware of. Because we've, we've kind of looked at what's happened so far. And a lot of the things is like really God doing stuff. And Moses really didn't have much of a play into it, right? The environment he was born into, Moses couldn't affect that one whatsoever. Uh, he, technically, he was slated to die. In the end, God spared him and raised him up in Pharaoh's palace. Uh, kills an Egyptian, flees to Midian, um, and we'll get into this a little bit. And at this point, he starts having a God encounter. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 3. We're just, I'm going to read through the whole chapter, uh, and then we will get into some of the points. So starting on slide number three, Twyla, and I'm going to make her do some like cross-country skiing while we're uh, trying to do this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. All right, so that's important. We're going to come back to that. He's a priest in Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. So there's this peculiar thing, right? He's going along, tending the sheep, bush on fire. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it wasn't getting burned up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Now, I don't know if I would actually use that phrase. I'd just be like, hey, what's going on? But, you know, Moses' time, maybe that's what he said. Why the bush is not burning up? When, Moses, when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Boy, wouldn't that be an eerie sight? You see a bush on fire, and then you hear your name coming out of the bush. Like, like, let's think about this. This is not an ordinary thing, right? Like, this is an experience you're going to remember no matter what happens. 
And then he's like, what? What? And then you hear, don't come any closer. So God said, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. When we get to Sinai, we see that something changes, right? Because then he does want to see. And that's a whole other thing that's later on. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Insert Byron comment, right? Menonites. <laughs> and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. All right, so this whole thing is coming out of a fiery bush, right? Like, this is a, clearly a peculiar thing. And then Moses, you know, being the guy, you know, raised in a palace, kills an Egyptian, goes into exile into Midian, spent the last 40 years tending a flock. Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Israel? Who am I? I'm just an exile. I'm a nobody. They put a, a price tag on my head if I go back into Egypt. And, like, who am I? Why, why me? What qualifies me? And God doesn't even, like, give him an explanation, right? His next answer is it's kind of a non-answer to that question. God says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Like, it's like Moses didn't even ask that question, right? And then Moses comes back. He goes, okay, God, suppose I do go to them. And I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? Because at this point, we don't really have a name for God. I don't think God ever introduced his name to Abraham as far as I can remember. It's like, so what is your name, if they ask? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, okay, so we're going to start with the Hebrew word. We all know it, mostly, I think. Yahweh. Or, or if you wanted to, to get that thick, guttural accent, it might be like something like, Yahweh, Yahweh, something like that. Which, when you break it down, it means, I am. That, that's all it means, I am. Um, I am who I am, uh, is the translation. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Jacob, Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised 
to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt and into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to pause right there because that sounds very repetitive. Is there a possibility that Moses might forget and God has to say it over and over and over? There's a very good likelihood. I mean, this is an awe-inspiring moment, right? Like the bush is on fire, it's telling him, go talk to Pharaoh. Also, when you're writing down scripture in the old world, this is, like that environment is a very like auditory environment. A lot of these stories were spoken from generation to generation before they got written down. And so what you see in the Bible that seems like a ton of repetition are actually memory devices to help people remember the story. Uh, so if you think, man, why does God have to say this like five times? Because it's to help us remember, because we are so prone to forget details that if you have to say it over and over and over again, it's a good way you're going to remember it, right? How do you learn something? You do it over and over and over again. So, little side note there. That one's for free. You don't have to pay for that one. <laughs> so the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know, this is God saying, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform. Wonders aren't necessarily good things, just so you know. Like signs and wonders, wonders could be good, wonders might not be so good. They're just wonders, like, whoa. Okay, so... Because we, we can see the wonders that are coming to Pharaoh aren't mo the most enjoyable kind of wonders that are coming. <laughs> uh, so I will perform wonders among them. And after that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. Not by warfare. We can see that like all of these wonders that happened to Egypt, like they're like, just take enough money to get out of here and don't come back. That's basically what happens. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on. This is Moses' encounter, right? This, this Kairos moment, this, this God encounter. <clears throat> So let's, I'm going to do a little bit of a historical context here. So i got a chart up here. This is slide number 20. I don't know if you can read it. I couldn't get the... Oh, it does pop up really good. I'm struggling to get the text to fit, so it might be big enough that you guys can read. So basically, our timeline is uh, roughly 1805 is when Joseph dies. 1730 is the enslavement of the Israelites. This is the pharaoh who knew not God. Most likely, it's one of the pharaohs of the Hyksos period in Egypt, um, we'll get into a whole lot of that. Also going on in the rest of the world is the Hittite Empire. This is one of the biggest empires that's located on uh, the western part of like Turkey. Uh, uh, and so when God says, I'm going to give you like all of this land, the Hittites is involved in there. This is a massive land grab. This is just the Hittites. So, I mean, we're talking um, north of Turkey, you know, like right, right there by the Caucasus Mountains. Like the original promise was to go from there all the way through what we know is the promised land now. It doesn't actually happen in that entirety. I think there's a lot of, uh, lot of um, disobedience that ends up happening. 
That's just my opinion. Uh, that'll, that and a buck fifty will get you a, a small cup of coffee nowadays. Um, but we're also looking at the beginning of the Iron Age. So this is what's going on when God's calling Moses out. Um, and then, uh, so in 1527 is when Moses is born. Roughly 1482 to 1447, somewhere in there, that's where Moses is in Midian. right? So he's born, and he grows up in the palace, roughly 40 years, and then spends some time in Midian, and then the Exodus begins in 1446. 1446, that's when they, they, they're, they're, they get into Exodus. This is right in around the time frame of uh, the Hyksos kind of waning, and then the 13th dynasty coming back into uh, control, because uh, the Hyksos kind of divided the kingdom. But anyway, a little bit of historical context, not a lot of time on that, just, just to give you a framework of what's going on. Don't try to do the math, because it's always fluid. Nobody can agree on the math, so the numbers might not be exact. That's okay. All right, so slide number 21. First, we're going to pull up this. Moses was a, is a type of Jesus. You, if you've heard a lot of sermons over the years, you might have come across the term typology. What does that mean? That, that you have these figures in the Old Testament that kind of take on a, a Jesus-like pattern. It's almost like God sets the stage with this pattern before Jesus comes on the scene. Uh, we, talk, we say Joseph is a bit of a, as a type of Jesus. I mean, we even have that, I think, coming right out of Hebrews where they make that connection. In a sense, Moses is also a type of Jesus. In that uh, we, we look at Jesus' titles, outside of Messiah, we, we look at his, his lineage, his heritage, and we can des describe him as a prophet, a priest, and a king. You might have heard that before, prophet, priest, king. King, because he's from the line of David. Priest, because he's from the line of Levi, based on Luke. And he's a prophet, right? He, even in the scriptures, he says, a prophet greater than Moses, right? A prophet greater than, name your prophet, is among you. And so Moses kind of fits this pattern. So he's kind of a type that, that, that predicts the coming of Jesus. So first up, Moses is raised and trained in a royal environment, right? He's raised with kings. He's raised as a ruler, as the princess's adopted son. He does that for 40 years. He spends 40 years growing up in a rulership-type environment, almost getting prepared, setting the scene for something that involves rulership. And then there's this catalyst of change moment. There are points in our lives where we have this moment that happens that catalyzes a change. It might be getting fired from a job. It might be the loss of a spouse. It might be getting married, having a child. Something catalyzes a change in our life where there's pretty much a point of no return. So whatever this catalyst is, we are redirected one way or another, and that's kind of the path we have to go on. There's no going back to the way things were. For Moses, this environment in the palace gets catalyzed by him killing the Egyptian. So he spends 40 years living in a rulership-type environment, trained by the best scholars, trained by the best tutors the Egyptian royalty has to offer, kills the Egyptian, and has to flee. So there's this catalyst moment. And so he flees to Midian, 
and we'll kind of get into that here in just a second. So this catalyst of change forced a change in Moses' life and Moses' trajectory. So then Moses goes to Midian. Um, I think Byron kind of touched on this a little bit um, last week, but there's this whole thing where you know he's helping these daughters like, get some water for her flocks because the other shepherds were just kind of abusing them and stuff and uh, ends up marrying one of them. So Moses marries into Jethro's family. Jethro is a priestly family in Midian. So king, priest, right? So what happens? He lives in Jethro's family, tending their sheep for 40 years. So now he's spending 40 years in a priestly environment, learning, learning the ways of priestliness, learning the ways of, of reverence, right, of holiness. How, how do you observe holy practices? My guess is that this Midianite practice is that when you're around holy things, you did things barefoot. And that's the connect point for this burning bush because Moses, you know, in his mind, represents holy places with being barefoot. Um, this is just a guess. It, it's, it's an inductive guess. Um, and so God was meeting Moses where he was and, and, and showing Moses like the value system that Moses was familiar with. Because God talks to us in our language. God doesn't talk to me in Russian. I wouldn't understand what he was saying. Right? And sometimes he uses the vernacular that, that I would use, which maybe nobody else uses. God talking to us is a very subjective thing. It's Anyway... So he's, he's living in Jethro's environment, a priestly environment, in a priestly family for 40 years. And so he's doing his, right? In, in the palace, he was doing his life, has an encounter, kills an Egyptian. Whole thing gets disrupted, right? Goes to Midian. 40 years doing his life, taking care of the sheep, being in the priestly environment, taking care of Jethro, taking care of his wife. Then... As he's taking care of the sheep, another catalyst of change, the burning bush. You don't walk away from a burning bush like this and not be changed. Just It doesn't happen. So all of a sudden, this next catalyst of change happens, and Moses' trajectory is thrown into a tizzy again. After 40 years in a palace, 40 years shepherding a priestly family's flock and being in the priestly family, now there's this new catalyst of change. And that leads him into, um, and this will come in, in following sermons, 40 years of prophetic ministry that is also combining the priestly and the kingly. Uh, so Moses had 40 years to learn rulership, 40 years to learn priestly disciplines, and now he's got a prophetic commissioning. So God commissions Moses to take on an impossible task. Like nobody, nobody comes on the scene and says, I am going to free an entire group of people from a government. Like it usually doesn't end very well. I mean like if, if you guys remember the 1990s, the Michigan militia, that didn't really end very well, right? Or, or Waco, right? David Koresh is gonna free people the Branch Davidians, uh, that didn't end very well either. So, I mean, like, things tend not to, to go very well when you want to free people from the government. And just, just saying, you know, it practically plays out. There's not a lot of success from that. 
Um, so I can imagine Moses going, I don't know about this. I, I don't know if I'm really hearing this right. <laughs> you know, I mean, and Moses gives pushback. We'll, we'll find that out. But God's commissioning him. He's sending him on a mission, right, to achieve the Lord's purposes. That's important. And in this one, this no, this doesn't always happen. But for Moses and what we have here, God lays out the whole strategy right on the front end. When God's commissioned me to do stuff, I do not get the whole strategy. I'm sorry, I like I, apparently I'm not that fortunate. He's just like, here's the next step. Moses, he's like, like you're going to go talk to the elders, and then you're going to go talk to Pharaoh. Like, like all on the front end, you're going to go talk to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to say no. I'm going to do a bunch of wonders. They're going to kick you out, and then you're going to go. Like, whole step right there. I never get that. I get like, oh, yeah, I have this job opportunity opened up. So it's the only job opportunity, so that's the one you're going to go into. Like, like that's... Moses had it all mapped out for him. Now, sometimes, maybe, maybe other people, God gets the whole blueprint to, is not giving it to me. That's, that's all I'm saying. So, good for you, Moses. Good for you. You had all the steps on the front end. But God comes on the scene, and he's ready to rescue his people. He's ready to do it. He's calling Moses to be a part of this. And God wants to deliver them to this other land, the land that, that Abraham spent his whole life just wandering up and down. That, that's where they even get the word Hebrew from. It's just, that means wanderer. The Hebrew people, it's the wandering people. They just wandered here and there to and fro because they never had a home of their own. After Abraham packed up and left um, the cradle of civilization, right, the Euphrates, after he packed up and left Babylon and Assyria, that whole area, he just roamed around from place to place, just following the Lord, doing his thing, buying up land, you know. And never, he was a sojourner, right? He was a wanderer all of his life. Now all of his kids became wanderers, and their kids became wanderers. And then Joseph, and then they were all wanderers. They, they kind of had a place for a couple of centuries in Egypt, but technically they were still wanderers. They were still called Hebrews. All those Hebrews, right? All those wanderers are a blight on our society, so, now God's going to call them to wonder again. But the Lord wants to deliver them all that promised land, right? The land of Canaan, and the land of the Hittites, and the land of the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hibites, and the Jebusites. He wants to deliver them to this home, a place they can call home. They've never been able to do that. So Moses says, you know, God says, take the elders to Pharaoh. And he's like, here's your premise. We need to go and worship on this mountain for three days. That's it, three days. That's the premise. And then Pharaoh's like, no, no. And then he gets mad and increases the workload, makes them go gather their own straw and then build their bricks. He doesn't listen. We'll get into the plagues. Um, but eventually he, forces, he tells them to go and the Egyptians willingly to give their riches to him. Says, get out of here. Get out of here. And God gives Moses this blueprint right on the front end. Right in that burning bush. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. That's the game plan. Just do what, do what I say. Okay, so this is Moses' commissioning. And that's, that's the main thing we're focusing on. So, 
In conclusion, yeah, this is a nice, short, sweet one. That way you guys can remember it more so I don't bog you down with a bunch of details. Um, here are our takeaways for the conclusion. Part one, nothing is wasted. No matter what we do in life, whether uh, we spend 10 years in obedience to the Lord or 10 years in disobedience to the Lord, when we get back to the Lord, we will find that nothing is wasted. Um, this last week, uh, I just interviewed for an IT manager position. I don't know if I'm going to get it. Um, but the thing that got me to the table was that I've been helping pastor this church for almost 15 years. Like, if that's not management experience, I wouldn't really know what is, right? I mean, yeah, we're, we're easygoing, right? We're, we're very, you know, come as you are, blue jeans, t-shirt kind of church. We, we don't do a lot of uh, big formalities in the service. It's still an organization. We still have to run things. Byron and I still have to make ministerial decisions, administrative decisions. And I don't think any of my other um, co-workers who put in for the position has that kind of management experience. Like, do they know the technology better than I do? Yeah. However, this is something where the Lord's saying, you know what, 15 years of ministry in a small church with a, with a part-time salary, it's not going to be wasted. I'm going to use it. Now, it doesn't necessarily he's going to use it in an IT management position. And at the same time, he just spoke to me about that. You know, he's like, it's not going to be wasted. These are relevant things, whether in this world or the next one, it doesn't matter. The things that you're gaining doing the kingdom work is things that I will use for the next steps in life and for the next level of commissioning. It's an amazing thing. Uh, even, even like unwise consequences, um, consequences of unwise decisions can be redeemed in the call of God. You know, sometimes we'll go out and make dumb mistakes and learn from them. And God can redeem those as we can become mentors to other people and help them avoid making those mistakes. It's, it's a beautiful thing. The resurrection life is a beautiful thing because anything can be resurrected for kingdom use. And so that is powerful. And we see this. Moses spent 40 years in a palace and then had to flee into exile and live as a shepherd, tending flock for his father-in-law who was a priest. And we see by the time they get out of the promised land, Moses has scripted an entire law code for them to live by. I mean, like, clearly it's Holy Spirit inspired, but do you not think his education in a palace with rulers would not influence the way that he puts together a law code for how people should treat each other? It's not wasted. He, and in addition to that, right, he sets up an entire like practice code for the priests as well. So do you not think those 40 years living under Jethro's tent prepped him to be able to articulate holy moments, holy practices, holy articles, what to do, cleansing rituals? I mean, like, yes, a lot of it is inspired by the Lord, and his experience with Jethro lends to his ability to kind of organize that and articulate that. And so his time with Jethro is 
not wasted. So when this commissioning comes to become a prophetic voice and a leader of the people, he's got 40 years experience as a ruler, 40 years experience in a priestly setting. Now he's bringing his 80 years of experience to bear on leading a people and guiding them for holy practice and godly like legal systems. I mean, it's an amazing thing that we just don't tend to think about. So, nothing is wasted. That's the, our first takeaway. No matter what, what's going on, whatever experience you have in life, good experiences, bad experiences, it doesn't matter. When you take all of that and you put it at the feet of the cross, for us, we're letting go, right? We're, we are just letting go of that and saying, good, the bad, the ugly. It's yours, Jesus. Do what you want. You know, we leave it there. If God decides to pick it back up, it'll have a powerful purpose in the kingdom of heaven, and it won't be wasted. It won't be wasted. So there's no point, it don't matter how old we are, there's no point in mourning what we might view as wasted time or wasted energy. Once we submit it to the Lord, it's not going to be wasted. Okay? It's not going to be wasted. doesn't mean that we're going to be instantly removed from the consequences of stupid activities. That's, that still might happen, and those lessons might be painful. And it's not going to be wasted because God is good. So that's our first takeaway. Our second takeaway, we will have, if we're legit walking with the Lord, if we're doing what the Lord calls us to, if, if we even have an ear closely bent to what his voice might be saying, we, there, we can be sure there will be a, a catalyst point for change. Something is going to catalyze a change in our life, and there's going to be a point of no return. Like it happens. It's part of living. And if we're living for the Lord and we're pursuing the kingdom, those catalyst points will happen. Sometimes it's from our own doing. Moses could have chosen not to kill that Egyptian. And he did. And at the same time, that served as a catalyst point for his transition into the next stage in life. Sometimes it's our own doing. Sometimes it's not. However, when we're devoted to the Lord, those catalyst points will be used to build something more. God doesn't redirect our lives just because he wants to, just because things happen. There's a purpose to it. And we, if we embrace that purpose, we can, we can learn from that, we can grow from it, and we can continue to cooperate with God in this kingdom work that he has for us. For Moses, this set the stage to learn 40 years priestly discipline, concepts of reverence and holiness, and how to listen to God, right? If he's in the palace, he's probably got a ton of what I would call frenetic activity, right? People always in the court, balls, parties, logistical meetings, just tons of noise going on in the head. When you're tending sheep, there's a lot of silence. There's a lot of quiet. And if, if you play it wrong, it'll be a lot of boredom. If you play it right, there's a lot of opportunity to hear the voice of the Lord. 
And so this catalyst point causes Moses to, to start learning priestly disciplines. And so those catalyst points, that's our second takeaway, is we'll have a catalyst point that'll change things and it'll help us to recognize God doing something. Our third takeaway is recognizing holy moments and respecting them. It, it's, it's kind of easy for me to say here and now. Like I, I grew up, uh, I, didn't, I didn't grow up in the church. I converted into the church as a teenager. And I converted into a Pentecostal church, which is a whole different kind of ball of wax um, than charismatic. I mean, like, they're both, like, spirit-filled, right? Word of the Lord kind of stuff. It feels different. I mean, it totally feels... If you go to a Pentecostal church, man, sometimes you walk out going, what just happened? <laughs> One of the things I learned in the Pentecostal church, right, not really too concerned about the precision of their theology, right, it's not knock against them, it's just the way it is, not too concerned about the fallout, but there is a concern about holiness. Um, more than any other type of church that I've been in, I haven't seen one where like a group of people, like a big group of them, will just literally take their shoes and socks off because of holy ground. Like, I've always felt that was kind of weird. Like, I, like, there's something in me that just said, like, Moses' holy ground thing is probably a cultural thing. Like, like even before I knew anything about theology, I was like, that just seems like something they do back then, that you know, these two words about Bible interpretation that, that really serve as a good parameter for us is, some things in the Bible are description, right? And some things in the Bible are prescription. Doctor writes you a prescription, you go do it. Doctor describes something, not necessarily go do ye likewise. And Moses in the burning bush feels more like a description than a go do ye likewise kind of passage. That's just me. That's where I'm at. So... Was I totally on board with Pentecostals taking their shoes and socks off? <laughs> Not necessarily. Like maybe I didn't shower that day. <laughs> That's okay. So the important thing, though, the thing that I learned was the concept of reverence. And I think a lot of Christian culture today, we've lost a sense of reverence. Um, I, I think I, I think it's easy. Hard to say this without being offensive, right? So I'm like trying to like, how do I say it the best way? It's easy to, in a sense, take an over-emphatic view on grace that it causes us to cheapen reverence. Um, so uh, a grace where like, like we, we can be, like we can have bad attitudes or, or bad behaviors in the presence of the Lord and we just say, oh, you know, God's grace covers it as an excuse for not being reverent in his presence. Um, that's my opinion. I'm not making a doctrinal statement. I'm, this is not a position of TGP. This is just my opinion. Like I said, batting a buck fifty, cup of coffee. That we kind of cheapen reverence 
by using grace as an excuse not to be respectful in the presence of the Lord. And by extension, when we do that, we then begin to cheapen the grace. So it's not really grace. Then it becomes like a low-level licentiousness kind of a thing. Anyway, that's my musing. Sorry, I just, I'll, I'll stop that rabbit hole there. But the importance of recognizing holy moments and respecting them is very important. Um, case in point, in the Pentecostal churches, shoes aside, there would be times, and uh, I, don't, I don't think it'll have the same kind of feel here if, if and when it happens, um, and that's fine. And I'm not trying to recreate something in the, that I've experienced in the past. What I remember is that sometimes there would be a very clear cut speaking in tongues as a declaration. And then almost like a holy silence would hit. And then one person would get up and give the interpretation. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it has to happen here. That's, I'm not saying I'm trying to create that. I'm not trying to, just by mentioning this, I'm not trying to say, hey, here's an idea in your head. No. But that silence between the tongues and between the interpretation, you felt something heavy in the room. And to me, that is, and you learned to respect that, right? You, like, like, you just, you felt in that room, like, you don't talk when this happens. And like, I feel like that's the kind of reverence that we need to have for some holy moments. That maybe, maybe when that hits, our ears should be open and our mouths should be closed. No matter what. Until it passes. Just a thought. Reflecting on Moses' experience here. So, point number three important to recognize those holy moments and to respect them. <clears throat> because those holy moments leave an impression on us that will last the rest of our lives. I mean, here I am, I think I was what, 14, 15, maybe 16 when I'm experiencing that, and I'm in my early 40s now, and I still, still have a memory of that sensation. Like, it's going to be with me for the rest of my life. And so, recognizing those holy moments will impact us in ways that we, we won't even realize decades down the road. So that's our third takeaway. And our fourth takeaway, and this is the last one, I promise, when God decides to move, He will move. When God says, <laughs> you know, to use like a Charlton Heston type voice, it is time, right? When God decides to move, he will move, regardless of the obstacles, regardless of who stands in his way, regardless of what the situation is. When he decides, it's happening. With Moses, that burning bush was just a sign that God said, I'm ready. It's been, what, 432 years, whatever the number was, when he predicted it to Abraham. And he says, it's time, and Moses, you're the one. We don't know when that's going to happen. Moses didn't have a clue this was going to happen. I mean, like, for us, it, 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 it might be uh, something in our family life. It might be something in our career. It might be something in the church. You know, but at some point, God might be, it is time, fine, and you're the one. It is time, Byron, and you're the one. 
It is time, Tori, and you're the one. It is time, Jerry, you're the one. And we might be like Moses. What? Why me? Who am I? <laughs> when he says it, and he's, he decides it's time, it's time. Like, it's his timeline. He says it. All we can do is either get in line or get run over. That's basically our options. Get in line or get run over. Um, I remember... Um, there's a, few, there's a few things I remember from seminary because it was just such an overwhelm of information that I just couldn't process everything. One of my professors um, used to quote uh, a, a rabbi phrase often. He says, when the millstone of God's judgment moves, it moves slow, but it moves steady. So when God moves, like it, it might take 400 years. But when that stone starts moving, it's not stopping. And that's a, that's a wonderful analogy because you know those millstones are thousands of pounds. Like I don't want to try to get in the way of a millstone running downhill and try to stop it. It's happening. So when God goes like this to that millstone and it starts... You're either along for the ride or you're getting crushed. Fortunately, Moses eventually had the wherewithal to say, okay, all right, I'm going to do this. Let us be likewise, right? Let us do that likewise. Let's know when God decides to move how we can partner with it and not be try to be a resistance to it. So anyway, yeah, it's <laughs> nice to leave it on a heavy note, right? <clears throat> The good thing is that we can take comfort and confidence so that when he makes a decision, when he decides to move, it will come to pass. And if we're on his side, it doesn't matter if we're on the right side of history or the wrong side of history. I don't care what the politicians say. When we're on God's side, when he moves, it will be well with us. And so we're to be faithful to that directing, to be obedient obedience to that because I think it's in Malachi I could be wrong I think it's in Malachi where the Lord says like, he's not impressed with the sacrifices of the bulls and the goats because he prefers what? Obedience over sacrifice Amen. Lord I sold all my money and gave it to the poor just like you told the rich man I told you to pray a prayer with a person right? Lord, I cast out demons in your name. I told you to worship me. Right? Lord, I, I grew a mega church that, that got 80,000 people that show up every Sunday. I told you to have a relationship with me. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Like, does God honor our sacrifices? Yes, when it's in line with the obedience. And so... Those are our takeaways. Nothing's wasted. These catalysts, these catalyst points for change indicate a point of no return, but God's doing something with it. It's important to recognize holy moments and to respect them. And when God does decide to move, he's going to move regardless of anything. And it's going to be better if we're in line with that and we're obedient than any sacrifice we can ever offer. So that's that. Now for, uh, I think most of all of us in here 
or, or believers, but maybe anybody listening in on the podcast or coming across this later on, if you don't know this God, if your idea of this God is some cosmic judge that's waiting to thwart you, you have a, the wrong idea of the God that Christians serve. We have a God that loves us, who's moved heaven and earth to draw us closer to you, to him, and to save us for all eternity. Um, and if that is something that you're interested in, if, if this message has piqued your interest, and you want to know more, you don't have to make a commitment right away. All, if, but if you're interested, all you, can, all you have to do is just say something like this. Jesus, I'm interested to learn more. Please show me who you are so that I can know whether or not I should serve you. That's it. Now, if you have mentioned that, and uh, I believe the Lord will have an encounter with you regarding that. If you have more questions, get a hold of a Christian that you might know who could answer this. If you don't know any Christians, you can always reach out to us here um, through email at info at tgpchicago.org. Once again, that is info at tgpchicago.org. And uh, one of our believers here will be glad to be in touch with you to answer any questions that you've got. So uh, with that, uh, thank you for tuning in on the podcast. And I'm going to close us out here in person in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for your goodness. And uh, thank you for your faithfulness. When you have called us into a covenant and we come into it, that your, your faithfulness is everlasting, and never ending, always gracious, Lord. And that you lead us into uh, the robes of righteousness and that you lead us into an eternal life of joy, peace, and love constantly in your presence. And so, Lord, we give you the thanks, the praise, the glory, and the honor. And we lift your name on high. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen. Hello again. This is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you were blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of the Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. God bless you and have a great week.